Good morning, Cedar Home. How's everybody doing? You heard it. We are people that doesn't just send, we go. When Jesus said, um, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, there was implied uh, a work to be done to make disciples. And that happens here, but it happens wherever the Lord calls us to. So if there are some of you that are getting to that point where you're wondering how it is that the Lord's going to manifest that call in your life personally, you know the word, you know the gospel, and you're ready to tell people about it, perhaps there is an opportunity for you to go. That's pretty cool. All right, so we are in the middle of our Advent study, um, and I wanted to take a moment real quick to reiterate something that Shay had uh, articulated beautifully, said, on Christmas Eve, you might have the opportunity to tell someone who otherwise would never step within these walls that they ought to come and join us in the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so uh, we have been working really, really hard to put together these tiny little packets of cards, okay? They're really nifty, I think. Uh, It says, nifty? Is that a... Okay, cool. My wife said yes. Uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service, and they're pretty neat. So if you don't have one of these in your hands right now, I would love for you as you step out and head back into the world to take the opportunity to grab one. And think of the five people. There's five of them in here. The five people around you that God has placed in your network that you can be handing this to with the hope that you can personally invite them to join us in that work. Okay? We can do that, so let's do that together. And until then, we're going to start our time together, our study in Advent, by continuing in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm actually going to start with the Psalm of David. This is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O my Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Anyone sharing the frustrations of David like this any given day? Come on, be honest. Anyone ever share that in their hearts on any given day? Isn't it encouraging to think that that inspired scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us the opportunity, says that it is permissible for us to lament, to sorrow, to anguish before the throne of God. Now, I know I'm not getting off to the best, uh, the best way of, of, of introducing the Christmas season, okay? We're not, we're not being very cheerful when we talk about things like this, but the truth is we're doing a disservice, you guys. We're doing a a disservice to the study of the birth of our Lord and all of the joy and the happiness that comes with that moment when we're not also constantly reminding ourselves that we live in the midst of this time in which we are awaiting the day in which that same Christ promised that he is going to return to us. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to focus our time today on that time period in between. From the moment that Jesus went up to be with the Father to the moment in which he is calling us to remember that he is coming back one day. As we continue our study of the meaning of Christmas and Advent, we're going to seek to answer this question. We are going to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to do until the second Advent? 
How are we supposed to behave now? What is our mindset supposed to be in this moment? And to do that, we're going to do it in a really neat way. Remember last time we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3? Well, today we're going to be going all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19. And first I'm going to pray for us in our time together as you open up the, the word to 1 Kings chapter 19. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that we've had to, to worship you in the presentation of the hope and the peace and the joy that comes in this, this season in which we get to remember the day that the Word became flesh. Lord, thank you for the hope that, that continues to reside in the hearts of your people as we look forward to the day in which you will return, Jesus, and you will make all things new. And Lord, just bless this time as we have together to be able to get into your word and to just meditate, Lord, on the different ways in which we are called to persist. We're called to hope and look forward to the day in which you'll come back and you'll make all things new. Lord, please... Be with us now as we open your word. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, little review. Uh, first and foremost, we started off our Advent study by going over the need for Advent, right? We talked about how there is a need, and it is grounded in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. When God created everything, we found out that he created it, and it was what? It was good, right? He made man and woman in his image, and when he did that, he, he said the creation was what? It was very good. But see, mankind sinned. They disobeyed the commands of God that he had given them, and we found out that when they did that, the world that God had made very good was now very much tainted by the sins of man. But remember... Remember that he said, he made a promise to us that day, in that moment, that he promised that one would come who would undo what Satan had accomplished in the garden through this deceiving serpent, and that person would be a serpent crusher. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and between her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And ultimately, although Adam and Eve, they, they really didn't know what God was saying in that moment. They didn't know the, the fullness of the mystery of his revelation in that moment. They didn't know that God was promising that the serpent crusher would come and he would achieve a victory. But he would achieve that victory by, by taking away their sin and their guilt and their shame on himself and dying the death that they deserved on their behalf. That is the hope that we have in this Advent season to look forward to. God made that promise to us, church, in that moment. But then, the exciting thing is, the reason why we go back to the Old Testament so often is because God got to work on that plan. This is what he does. All throughout the Old Testament, this is what we read that he is doing. He's, he's raising up a people, right? A nation, a, a body through which his plan for salvation would, would go out into the rest of the world and be implemented. Does that sound familiar? See, you say that's Israel. Church, does that not sound familiar to you, you ambassadors of reconciliation, you? This is what God was doing even then. He, he talks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. He says, I'm going to make you into a nation. Kings are going to come from you. Your offspring shall, shall bless all of the nations of the world. To Judah, he said, the scepter shall never depart from you, Judah, nor the, the ruler's staff from between your feet. 
to Moses and the people. He says that if you obey my voice, if you keep this covenant that I am making with you, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. You'll be a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then to David, man, Pastor Bill, coming here last week, telling you all about it. We serve a king, do we not? He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down, when your life comes to an end, I'm going to raise up an offspring from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. But here's the thing. Even as God is making all these promises, even as, as God is working tangibly amongst his people in, in ways that we can see, guys, a thousand years. That's what Pastor Bill said last week. A thousand years between the moment that David is given this promise and the moment that, that God's promises come to a climatic fulfillment in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A thousand years. Man, if you consider the amount of time, since if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and we think about Adam and Eve and we think about the promise that they received that the serpent crusher would come, thousands of years, much longer than we have been waiting for Jesus, people had been groaning and waiting for the serpent crusher. A thousand years includes suffering and loss. It included disappointment and the brokenness of relationships persecution, everything that we see laid out before us in the Old Testament. A thousand years, church, between David and Jesus. And so let's think about that time this week. Let's consider as God worked in that time and as his people waited, what that type of waiting can teach us about how we ought to behave as we wait today. And we're going to do so through the prophet Elijah. Bet you have never heard a Christmas sermon have anything to do with the prophet Elijah. But here we go. It's going to be a lot of narrative. It's going to be so much fun. A lot of narrative. Let's set some expectations here, okay? What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to work through two whole chapters of Scripture. I'm so excited. You're actually letting me do this. And then once we get through those three, two chapters of Scripture, I have three points, and it's going to help us understand how we're going to wait for the Lord, okay? Agreed? All right. You guys are in it. Listen. This is going to sound like, um, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote this, but it's going to kind of sound like a, a movie advertisement. So just, just bear with me. In a time when kings ruled over a split nation. That's how I read it when I read it this morning. So I don't know what to tell you. That's exactly what happened, though. In a time when, uh, when kings ruled over this split nation, there was a northern kingdom in Israel. There was a southern kingdom in Judah. So you can already tell things have gone horribly wrong since David was ruling. And there was a prophet named Elijah, and he'd been sent to the northern kingdom, okay? So to a people that are characterized by the fact that not a single one of their kings got it right. Can you think about a more hopeless mission to be sent to? And yet here he was, and he was sent to a king, the worst king, a wicked man named Ahab. Man, when I say Ahab, you ought to just do, it's one of those names you just want to spit out. Ahab. King Ahab ruled with his wife. Her name was Jezebel, okay? Ringing, ringing any bells here? We talk about Jezebel all the time. She describes the wrong type of woman, the one that you hope your sons never bring home to dinner. Jezebel and Ahab, what a dream team. And Elijah is sent to these two. Ahab had been ruling for a long time, and the result of that ruling 
was that there was a drought that was taking place as our story starts. It is because the king was wicked, but it was also because the hearts of the people had turned away from God. They had been worshiping after these idols. They'd been pursuing aggressively after one specific God named Baal. Let's start there in chapter 18. I'm going I'm to read through it. We're going to work through the text, and I'm going to point some things out to you as we work through it. It's going to be fun. After many days, it says in Exodus chapter 18, verse 1, after many days, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And in the third year of this drought, uh, it came, he came to Elijah and he said, go show yourself to Ahab and I'm going to send rain upon the earth. The, out, the drought is coming to an end. And so Elijah obeyed. He went and he showed himself to Ahab. Now, the famine, because of the drought, was very severe in Samaria. And Ahab, he calls this man named Obadiah over to the household. Now, it says, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. He feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took it upon himself at the risk of his own life to take 100 prophets hid by 50s in a cave and he fed them with bread and with water. Now, I don't want to belabor any points, but let me draw your attention to the fact that Obadiah uh, preserved how many prophets? 100. We're going to go over it like six times. Don't worry. 100 prophets Obadiah preserved. And he did so because he feared the Lord. Because he feared the Lord, he kept them alive. And so Ahab says to Obadiah, go through the whole land, through the springs, the water, the valleys. Perhaps we may find some grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Guys, Ahab's people are starving. Ahab is the worst. He cares about the mules. So they divide the land between themselves. Obadiah obeys. Ahab goes in one direction. Obadiah goes in the other direction. And Obadiah is on the way and says, behold, Every time you see behold, it's, it's, it's supposed to be uh, a mindset of like, this is not a coincidence. God is working, okay? Not a coincidence. Behold, Elijah met him and Obadiah recognized him and he fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? You've been gone for so long. And he answered him, it is I. Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. I feel like that's a superhero moment. Uh, oh, hi, uh, Obadiah um, reacts in a way that you don't expect. Obadiah should see the prophet of the Lord and he should be super excited, right? Instead, what he says is, have I sinned? Have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hands of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, is there no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you? And when they would say, he's not here, he, he would take an oath of the kingdom or a nation that they haven't found you. And now you say to me, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the, the spirit of the Lord's going to carry you away. To, I know not where. And so when I come and I tell Ahab that I cannot find you, what's he going to do? He's going to kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets by 50s in a cave, and I fed them on bread and water. Now you say to me, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. Now two points, you guys, two points. The narrator repeats himself word for word, so I don't want you to miss this. Uh, he indicates that Obadiah now tells Elijah, when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, I hid 100 prophets by 50s, and I fed them bread and water. And so here's what's happening. 
Now we know that we are reminded that there are a hundred prophets that still remain, and we are reminded that a fearful man of God preserved them, but we also know that Elijah knows this, okay? Elijah is now aware that there are 100 prophets in Israel because a God-fearing man kept them alive. Hold on to it, church. It's coming back. I promise. It seems redundant. It's not. Second point is this. Ahab is a powerful king, uh, so powerful that his servants are terrified of his wrath. And yet, he has proven he has the resources to hunt Elijah down and to take his life by petitioning rulers around him. And Elijah himself now has a moment in which he gets to say if he is concerned by this fact. Let's look in chapter, or in verse 15, if he is concerned. Elijah says, As the Lord of hosts lives before I stand... I will surely show myself to him today. He's not afraid, okay? Elijah is not afraid. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and he tells him, Ahab goes to Elijah. There's, there's gonna be a showdown here and Ahab looks at Elijah. He could have killed him, but this is what he says. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answers boldly, I have not troubled Israel, O king, but you have, you and your family, your father's house, because you've abandoned the commands of the Lord and because you followed the Baals. Does that sound like a guy that's scared of the wrath of the king? No, he is not. Man, he says, it's going down. Now, therefore, you gather all the men with me at Mount Carmel, and you're going to take 450 of those fake prophets of Baal, bring in the Asherah prophets, go ahead, throw them in those 400 prophets, and then all of these people who sit at Jezebel's table, we're going to come together and we're going to figure this thing out. And so the scene is set for a showdown between God and Baal, between God's prophet Elijah and the prophet of the fake gods. Let's see what happens. Ahab sends to all the people. He obeys Elijah. And he gathers the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah comes near to all the people and he says, How long will you go limping between different opinions? If the Lord is God, you follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. He's saying there's no choice between the two. Don't live halfway between your idols and split your affections between idols and God. No, if Baal is God, you follow that God. If God is God, you follow him with all of your heart. He's boldly proclaiming to lost people that God is the only God, that there is only salvation to be found in him and not in the world. And here's the thing, the people knew it. This is what they say in verse 21. People didn't answer him a word. Conviction had set in so fully as they realized what they had been doing so long. The reason why there was a drought all around them. Then Elijah says something. Verse 22, Elijah says to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, we might push right past that, wouldn't we? Except you all know how many prophets are left in Israel? At least 100. At least 100 prophets that we knows are left. He even knows that Obadiah, a man who feared the Lord, was the one who preserved them. This is weird. It's only going to get weirder, church. Hold on to that. Verse 22, let two bulls be given to us, Elijah says. He's setting the table. These are the rules. We all games have to have rules. Two bulls are going to be given. Let them choose one bull for themselves. They can have first choice. They're going to cut it into pieces. They're going to lay it on the wood, put no fire on it. 
And then I'm going to take the other bull. I'm going to lay it on the wool. I'm going I'm to put no fire on it. You call upon the name of your God. I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's the God. And all the people answer, sounds good. And <laughs> the Old Testament's hilarious. He, like, the prophets of Baal are standing nearby and they're watching this whole thing. And you got to think they're shaking in their boots because they know Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5 says they're going to be put to death if they're found to be false prophets. Basically, whoever's cow is consumed by the fire, that's the guy who gets to live. That's the rules. And the people say, sure, let's do this. And so Elijah says to the prophets of Baal who are shaking in their boots, Go ahead, you choose for yourself one bull. You prepare it first. For you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but don't put fire on it. They took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. So they limped around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them and he said, cry louder, for he is a God. Either he's, he's musing or, or maybe he's relieving himself. He went to the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey, you know, we got to go find him. Or perhaps he's just taking a nap. Wake him up. Crazy thing is, you guys, the prophets, they shout louder. <laughs> they cry louder. They, they, they cut themselves. They cut themselves as was custom with swords and lances. It says, until the blood gushed out of them. I don't mean to be graphic, but this, this is the sort of story that makes you chuckle until you realize the insanity that is unfolding before our very eyes. The insanity that grips the heart of an individual who would be willing to do something like shed their own blood upon the ground in order to, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And they rush headlong into their own destruction. Midway, midday passes. They're still raving, it says. And the narrator doesn't want us to miss it, so he says it three times. He says, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Guys, there is no Baal. Elijah says to the people, man, the prophets, they're exhausted at this point. Come near to me. People come near to him. He repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down over the course of, of, of years of neglect. Elijah takes 12 stones. He's, he's intentionally crafting this altar so that it represents all of the people that had been bound together in the covenant of God. And he, he makes a trench about the, the altar. It says that the trench could hold four gallons of seed. Don't be uh, confused by the ancient metric system. He puts wood on it. He cuts the bull into pieces. He lays it on the wood. And then he says to these people who are without water, fill up four jars of water pour out that precious resource on top of the altar. And they do it. He says, do it again. And they do it a second time. He says, do it again. 
and they fill up their jars and they pour it out a third time. And the water, it says, runs around the altar and it fills up the trench. If you're wondering what's going on here, you guys, it's so that in the middle of this drought, no one could say someone skipped on a rock and a spark flew up and the thing went up in flames. It's drowning in water. The water that they don't even have. No one can mistake that anything but God's power is going to bring this cow to a flame. And then Elijah stops. Man, not in chaos and not in chanting and not in cutting. He prays to the Lord. And he says, Oh Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things because you told me to do it. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Not that I would be vindicated or glorified, but that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back for your glory. This is the coolest part. It says, Then immediately, immediately the fire of the Lord, it falls down from heaven and it consumes up the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. It says it licked up the water that was in the trench so that nothing was left. And when the people saw it, undeniable proof that God is God and not Baal, they hit the ground. They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. And Elijah, he turns to the prophets and he says, it's not funny, but it's it's the law. He's being obedient. He says, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And so the people who were his enemies join him in the work of seizing those men as the law requires. And they put those men to death. And then Ahab turns and he screams at Ahab, or excuse me, Elijah screams at Ahab. Ahab, get going. Prepare your chariot. Hurry up and go, lest you get rained on, because all the rain's coming. Don't let the floods get in your way. And you know what Ahab does? He gets in his chariot and he gets going, because he knows that God is God. And it says, at the hand of the Lord, or the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He's filled with the Spirit. He gathers up his garments, and he runs as fast as he can before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. You guys, this is total victory. Total victory, church. God's moving mightily. People are being saved. The wicked are being punished. Everything's perfect here and now on earth. And Elijah's heart is full to the brim. His expectations are set on the kingdom of God. And behold, it's happening now. Woo! And if the sermon ended there, I'll tell you what. We'd get the wrong idea of what our expectations are supposed to look like as followers of God. We get the wrong idea about how we are supposed to be as people who are awaiting the Lord to work. Because God's about to reveal something about Elijah's heart in the midst of undeniably his greatest triumph. Chapter 19 is right around the corner. Here we go. Ahab tells Jezebel, All that Elijah had done, man, he doesn't get it. All that Elijah had done, no, God did it, Ahab. How Elijah had killed all the prophets by the sword. And so Jezebel sends this messenger to Elijah, and uh, she says to Elijah, because Ahab did not do this, so may the gods do to me, and more also, 
If I do not make your life as the life of one of my prophets by this time tomorrow. That is Old Testament for you are a dead man, Elijah. And so based on chapter 13, what we know is that Elijah is going to react by standing boldly, right? He's going to have no fear. Bring on the prophets, Jezebel. We've played this game before. If there are any of them left, we'll do it a second time. That's not what happens, is it? What does he do? It says, <laughs> verse 3, he was afraid. And he arose. And he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. This is weird, you guys. This does not characterize the heart of a person who believes in the victory that God can produce, who's dwelling in the promises of God that he is consistently proving in his life. He runs for his life, and he runs to a place that's so far away, man, 120 miles through Judah, a different kingdom to the bottom, that he might run as far away from Ahab and Jezebel as humanly possible. The same couple that he had boldly stood against not but one chapter ago. And Elijah, as he goes as far as he can go, he sits down under the shade of this tree that ought to have reminded him of the sovereign creator who created that tree for that very moment to provide him shade in this moment. And he says to himself and he says to God, let me die. He asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Guys, there are very few examples in Scripture that better articulate how, how far in despair a genuine follower of God can go in reaction to the circumstances of their life. Because that's what's happening here. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, one of the two men that is going to appear with the Son of God one day on the Mount of Transfiguration. He has seen with his eyes and participated in the mighty works of God as they unfolded, and yet life happens, and the same things that he had already faced in the past are being laid before his feet, and he says, that's it. That's enough. No more, God. I'm done waiting on your promises. And he lays down, and, and I mean, it doesn't say, in his exhaustion, he collapses and falls under, uh, into sleep under the broom tree. It's really neat. Um, God and his angel, they nurse Elijah in this moment, so gentle with, uh, with Elijah. It's not time for him to hear what God has to say. Right now, he needs to rest. He nurses Elijah. It says, the angel of the Lord says, arise and eat. And he looks, and behold, there's a cake. Everything make, everything's better when you have cake. There's a cake. It's baked. It's hot. It's on stones. And here's a jar of water. Elijah, have a drink of water. Eat a cake. Lay down again. Second time, the angel of the Lord says, arise and eat for the, for the journey that I have planned for you is too great for you. And so he arose and he ate a cake and he drank some water. And he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and for 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount 
of God. Now, if you have checked out at any point, church, I would love for you to check back in. I know that's a lot of narrative, but here we are. This is the point, okay? The Lord is about to speak, the the ESV says. I love that. When you have the little headers, that's not biblical. They add them later on, but it says the Lord is about to speak. That's like the big flag that says, pay attention. There, Elijah, he came to a cave on Mount Horeb, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God spoke to him in the darkness of Elijah's own making. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's lost on Elijah in this moment. But what the, what the circumstances are that he finds himself in. Church, it tells us that this is Mount Horeb. This is the Mount of God. You might know it as Mount Sinai. This is the place in the wilderness where God once presented himself to Moses and his people. He made that promise. He sealed his covenant with the people of God in smoke and in fire on that very mountain. And this is where God had made promises, promises to always love his people, to never fail, to to bring about the good of those that love and serve him, even in the midst of their suffering, even through their suffering now. And God chooses this place to reveal himself to Elijah in Elijah's darkest moment. And he says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Don't you remember, Elijah? In verse 10, Elijah doesn't get it, or he doesn't care. And that's the funny thing. This is where we ought to see ourselves in this text. He doesn't care. He looks up to heaven, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they've they've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Church, do I need to say it? Do I need to ask you again? Is Elijah the only one that serves the Lord? No. Did he remember Obadiah, church? Did he remember the the hundred of prophets that that Obadiah had had saved, even at the, the expense of his own life? Do you see what happens to us in our fear, in our flesh, if we're not careful, church? In our anguish, when life's circumstances, heavy as they may be, are weighing against what we know to be true about God. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life, and they're going to take it away. What does God do, church? Don't be distracted by Elijah. Don't get lost in how he may be reflecting our hearts in this moment. Don't look at Elijah. Look at Jesus. What does God do? He says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. (laughs) I'm reminded of what my dad would tell me. Get over here, son. Stand in front of me. The fear and the terror that I might have felt in my own heart when I knew I was wrong. But see, God coming near, that's, that's a grace. He doesn't have to do that. He's coming near now. And he's doing it out of love. It's awesome and it's terrifying. It says, a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces, uh, broken pieces, the rocks before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake and the mountains shook, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, a fire that raged as the fire that devoured the prophets of Baal. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. What's going on here? You know, it's, it's, it's a big deal, and we know that, because the author's taking time each time to stress the Lord's not in this great and awesome display, the thing that we expect him to be in. John Bimson, I don't know who that is, he writes in the New Bible Commentary this, this passage or this, um, this paragraph that, that kind of speaks to this verse in 12. He says, God's response was to pass by while Elijah stood at the entrance to his cave. Wind, earthquake, and fire manifest themselves in succession, but God is said to not have been in any of those. Then a different phenomenon followed. The translations of a low or gentle whisper, the ESV, or a still small voice, you'd read that in the RSV, they, they do not do full justice to this perplexing Hebrew expression, which, which better may be rendered a brief sound of silence. Although the text does not explicitly say so, it implies that God was, was at last passing by and he was doing so in the silence which followed the storm. Let's come back to that in a second. Let's take a look at the conclusion of Elijah's episode in verse 13, uh, when Elijah heard it, he wraps his face in his cloak, perhaps to hide his shame, perhaps because he could not look at a holy God. And he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, it says there came a voice to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Do you remember Elijah? Maybe a little quieter this time, Elijah says. God, I, I have been very jealous for you. I feel like I've done everything you've asked me to do. Everyone you sent me to, they have abandoned you. Everyone I love is dying, and I feel like I, even I only, am the only one left who cares, and the world is going to be the end of me. Don't be confused, that's not the ESV. But see, this shows us where Elijah's heart is at. He's at his end, church. And he says, it's not the truth. That's not the problem. It's not the word that he knows to be true. That's not the problem. But here in the valley of his circumstance, it doesn't matter what's true. It doesn't matter what God has promised. It doesn't even matter that God is present with him in this moment. All that matters to Elijah is that the weight that he feels in his heart as he groans for God to do something is taking over him. You moved in the fire, Lord. You proved that you can do it, Lord. You can act now and you can fix everything, Lord. You moved in the wind. You moved in the earthquake. You moved in the fire. You, you could bring your kingdom now, Lord. You could destroy your enemies. You could save my friends. You could save my family. Save my life. Do something, Lord. 
Because I know you can. But the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And the Lord was not in the fire. He was in the silence. Man, church, God is so good. Do you know that God does the most merciful thing he could do for Elijah in that moment, in all of the ways that he was speaking to him? He proves that he's present in the silence. Verse 15, um, God doesn't address Elijah's uh, statement. What he does is he spells out for him all the things that he is actively doing. He says, Go, Elijah, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arise, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah, or Elisha put to death, and Elijah, it's a big one. I will leave not 100, but 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah wanted everything now, church. So much so that when things didn't turn out the way he hoped, he lost all hope. So I'm going to challenge you to read for yourself the remainder of Elijah's story. For the purpose of what we're talking about today, um, it's not relevant. As we navigate what it looks like to be a people who anticipate the advent of Jesus, we're going to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to do until that day? How are we supposed to behave as a people? What should be our mindset um, when life is happening around us, but we're already told how the story ends? The first thing, these are your three points. The first thing is that we need to be a people that understands that there will be peaks and there will be valleys and what we do in each matters. Church, in the peaks, on the best of days, we should be a people that that follows after the word of the Lord. Didn't that kick off our entire episode in chapter 18? The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and just as it came to Elijah, it comes to us in the form of what he has inspired and told us and, 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 and proved to us to be true. He commands us to go, and we need to be a people that shows the courage that Elijah displayed to go, to pray as he prayed, to tell in front of all the world that you are God, I am your servant. If you answer me now, God, for all of the things that I am asking of you, let it be for your glory, God that the lost people of the world would be saved and that you would turn their hearts back. We're called to be a people that boldly engages the world with the confidence of the truth of God's word and the conviction of his actions on our behalf. We should act as Elijah acted in the peaks. But see, in the valleys, we need to not be a people that forgets the work of God that's so overwhelmed by the the circumstances that we face in in every moment that we are unequipped to navigate the suffering that he told us, he promised us is coming. We are to be a people that that face suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. 
And yeah, it might take a drink of water. It could take a cake or a nap. It could take time spent intensely with God in prayer, seeking after his word. It could take committing to gathering with God's people. But in the valleys, we have to be a people that remembers that God is working and he's working in the silence. As long as we're here, church, as long as God has placed us here, we need to keep in mind that in order to be effective in that work that he has given us to do, we must make it an effort in the peaks and the valleys to keep in mind the things that we do matters. The second thing is uh, we need to be a people that believes and remembers that God is working in the silence. God is working in the silence. Elijah was so caught up in all the miraculous works that God had been doing, all the things that he had been doing through Elijah, that he forgot that God is a God who has a bigger plan than Elijah. It was a plan that was constantly moving in ways that even Elijah would fail to see if he stopped looking for it. This is what God said in, in chapter 19, verse 15. He said, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Are you worried about Jezebel? I'm using Haziel, king over Syria, to give Ahab more than he can handle. And Jehu, the son of, of nobody, is going to bring Jezebel to an end. And the ones who have been seeking your life, I am raising up the next generation of prophet in Elijah that I will put in your place. I am working everywhere everywhere, Elijah, to preserve a people that will never bend the knee to Baal. And church, all of those actions, as mighty as they were, were just this short-term result to bring about the long-term plan that God always had to bring us Jesus. The wicked are being judged, and they will be judged. God will restore souls. He will make all things new. And knowing that, we have to be able to acknowledge that in our lives, to see it, to move forward knowing that God is a God who is working in the silence. And that brings us to our final point today. It's really the biggest point for us to take away. In the silence, we need to look to the advent of Jesus. We need to know the promises of Jesus, church articulated in his word, lived out actively in the people of God. We need to know the promises of God and we need to actively pursue those promises daily if we will be effective as a church, as a people of God. And if you're in this room today and you don't know those promises of God, then your role in our time and in this story is to act as the people did when they that witnessed the descending of the fire on top of that calf, to say that you are a sinner in need of the salvation that only God provides, not Baal. The truth has come near, the Bible says. The word has become flesh. God has shown himself in the perfect form of his son Jesus who came to this earth and who lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died the death that you should have died, and he rose again to prove that when he says you can believe in him and have life, he meant it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus Christ our Lord, and no man comes to the Father except through me. If you have not believed, then today you must believe. You must repent of your sin and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
and the promise of Advent, the promise of all the things that we have been talking about is you will be saved. And church, if that's already you, if that promise has been sealed on your heart in the Holy Spirit, if you're in this building today and you've been weighed down by the circumstances and the people around you and you are in the midst of a great valley where you know what is true but you just don't know what to do, now is the time that you must remember the gospel and remember the promises of God. What are you doing here, church? He's not only saved you in the breath that he told you to make disciples of all the nations and go, he also promised you that, behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He promised just as he left, he will come again. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And our response as a church is, it's amen. And come Lord Jesus. Let's end our time together as we began. Let's look at Psalm 13. Remember that David was lamenting to God in his grief. He was saying, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is how he concludes his lament. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My joy shall rejoice in your salvation. And I sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Church, David may have been in a valley when he wrote that. When he was singing Psalm 13, that might have been where his heart was. But by the inspiration of God himself and in the silence of that day, when the time came to press on, he chose to remember the promises of God, the God who always keeps his promises. And in that moment, he could sing the joy of that salvation. As we continue in our season of Advent, church, God has us in the exact peak or valley he intends us to be in. And so let's be a people who remembers that our God is the God who is working in the silence. He is working through Jesus. He is working in his people and he will fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for your spirit that affirms that not only word, not only wrote the word, but affirms that, the, that everything you wrote is true. Lord, we thank you um, for people that you have crafted out of nothing, Lord, that you've bound together in your spirit and that you have called to make disciples. Lord, we thank you for the reminder, God, that you will come. You will make all things new and you call us to persevere in the midst of a world that, that you have told us will reject us but that you have promised us will respond as your spirit wells within us and convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
Lord, allow us to be the conduits by which you are reaching the world around us. Bring to our minds not the the burdens and the weights of our heart, but God, fill us with your spirit and remind us of the joy of your salvation. Point us in the direction we ought to go, God. Allow us to be a people that are participating in how you are making all things new. And Jesus, come soon. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.